You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If uh, you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word, that's another thing that we do at Meadowbrook Church. We believe that the, the Bible is the Word of God, that when you hear the words of Scripture read, that you hear the same voice that spoke the galaxies into existence. We're convinced of that. We believe that it is without error, and that's why we ask you to stand, to honor it. So we're going to read Matthew chapter, I'll read Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, and we're just going to work our way through verse 12. Uh, throughout the summer, we're going to focus on the Beatitudes, and uh, we'll start with the first one this week, but, but we'll, we'll just read this passage. Uh, Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you may be seated. I was thinking about, just as I was preparing for the sermon series, I was thinking about the, the last three and a half years, uh, or a little longer than three and a half years that I've been with you as your pastor, and uh, we've been through a lot together. I mean, think about it. We've been through a lot. We, we, we've seen some crazy things in, in politics. I think we've never been so divided politically as a nation. We've endured a pandemic together. Uh, we, 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 we're on, I think, the threshold of entering into another recession, uh, possibly. World War III is more real to us today than it ever was, uh, at least in my generation, and, uh, and our nation could never, could, could, I don't think, could be, ever be more divided than it is today. There was the results of a major survey conducted by Edelman, who was published, it was published in 2021, that found that more than half Americans believe that the United States is in a cold civil war. Now, if you wonder what a cold civil war is, it's, it's when a nation becomes so divided that uh, it, it basically is so divided it thinks differently than the other group concerning what the nation is about or what it's, what it's meant to be about. It's what happens before a, a hot civil war when people are shooting each other over ideologies. And I believe uh, that, that that poll is correct. I think we're in a cold civil war. Uh, in his book, Cold Civil War, Christian uh, political philosopher by the name of Jim Belcher warns that Americans 
or that America is polarized and fragmented so badly that there are two different versions of America represented on the political left and on the political right that could eventually split the nation in two. You know, in his book, he uh, put this diagram together. You can go to the next slide. That I thought was helpful in describing the political landscape of our of our nation. And as I read his book, and I as I uh, read about his diagram and how he explained it, I thought, well, uh, I could see how Christians find themselves pulled in four different directions. And so, I, as this diagram is on the screen, I'll I'll explain what they what they are. Now, Jim Belchler believes that the that the new vital center is, you know, kind of going back to our, if we, do, we can just go back to our founding fathers' documents and have what defines America and what America is about, um, that would be great. And what we find ourselves in is that uh, each of these different quadrants politically, you know, we find, ourselves, we find our nation, you know, more and more extreme in terms of its, you know, people's political views. He's optimistic about, about our nation finding its way back towards this vital center. I'm more pessimistic. I don't think there is any way back. I think, though, that there's a way back for the church. I think, like Jim Belcher, I think that the church has a voice in the midst of all this. But if the church's voice is going to be heard, the church must first experience a revival or an awakening that brings us back to our center, which I believe our center we, is what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what the gospel draws us to. So, the, so just to explain this, and I'm not going to go into great detail. You can read Jim's book, or uh, I'll have more details in my, in my sermon manuscript. Freedom left, so you kind of get it. The left would be kind of your your political left, political right. You know, the more right you are, the more conservative you tend to be. The more left, the, the less conservative. Uh, freedom left, truth is relative in what you make of it. Government must be neutral on the question of, of the good, allowing the individual the final choice in determining the good life. Questions of right and wrong and ultimate purpose are what you make of them. Extremes in this quadrant, uh, or in this quadrant, like, like three would be extreme. Uh, some examples of that be that uh, America's founding documents were written by white supremacists. White fr fragility exists. Radical skepticism. Radical relativism. Okay, so you kind of you can identify, and probably even can think of politicians, and maybe even some people in your life, where you kind of fall into into those or into that extreme. The order left, that would be uh, your your progressive left, your your you know Democrats, progressive Democrats. Government has a moral obligation to eliminate poverty and to free the poor and ethnically marginalized into prosperity. You know, big government is kind of their thing. Uh, some extremes in this quadrant include white Christian nationalism is evil and a thing. Critical, critical race theory is objectively right. Um, 
So that would be, I'm just giving you some examples. There are many other examples that Jim lists in his book. Freedom right, uh, a description of freedom right. Government has no right to regulate the borders, social life, expression of individual persons, nor does it have the right to limit market, or limit market capitalism. Everyone has a right to make it to the top if they are willing to work hard enough. All men and women are created equal. Some extremes in, these, in this quadrant, uh, or one extreme could be globalization. And uh, there are so many other examples too. I am not a, I, like, I'm not a political philosopher, so this is all new to me. I sat in my office for about two to three hours just trying to think, how can I summarize like multiple chapters in this book, Cold Civil War? Uh, I, I, I got up from my desk to take a break and my eyes were blurry. <laughs> that's, like, that's, how, that's how I felt. Uh, the order right, my guess would be most of you in this room, uh, including myself. Small government that has been tradition, because we live in Wyoming, so that's, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't say that to uh, the church I previously pastored in Colorado. Um, order right. Small government that has been traditionally conservative, rooted in some form of Judeo-Christian worldview. And uh, I wrestled with, should I even list extremes in this category out of, uh, at, at risk of angering some of you? i got one person nodding. Please do. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, take your best shot. The Capitol riots would be an example of ex extreme view of the order right um, that happened, you know, over a year ago. Um, to be just show, kind of show my cards. The other day, I was in the car with Seth. We were on our way to uh, karate. Yeah, he had his karate. Uh, class, Kempo class, and there was a person who was driving a pickup truck. Uh, we were stopped at a red light, and the flag, one of the flags that he was bearing, said explicitive <laughs> F <laughs> Biden. That's, that's where we find the order right gravitating towards where it's acceptable even in the church, this is not me spanking Meadowbrook, <laughs> it's acceptable in the church, it's just my heart grieves over this, where we can wear hats that say, let's go Brandon. And, and so what's happening in all four quadrants is that all four quadrants politically, what, what's happening, and the media has a big part in this, I haven't even gotten into the media, it is pulling the church from the center to these, to these various extremes. Now, for us, conservative, evangelical churches, it is pulling us like, toward, further and further to the right from the center. Now, my, um, progressive Christians, you know, they're in this category, and I would even question whether or not they know who Jesus is. But for us, this is kind of where we live as evangelical, gospel-believing Christians. And what we're finding is we're finding ourselves drawn further and further away from the center. And, and so my hope and my desire for us, including my own heart, because like I, I've said to you multiple times, 
every time I preach a sermon, I'm really first and foremost preaching to my own heart. And I'm thinking, I've been thinking about this and, and, and wrestling with this. What does it really mean to be the church in America? Who do we really represent? Do we represent the order of rights or do we represent the kingdom of God? And, and, and so over the, 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 the weeks and months that we will spend in the Sermon of the, of the Mount, uh, my hope is that that it would just draw us closer and closer to the center. That our identity is not order right or the freedom right and, and whatever else you may find yourself gravitating towards. Our identity is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So throughout this sermon series, I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and so, you know, I, I don't know about you, but like even, even just throwing this up on the screen, I wrestled with what are my brothers and sisters going to think of me when, when I say some of the things I'm going to say? Or, or like I mentioned, I wasn't like, what I mentioned here about the extreme order right, it's not in my manuscript. In fact, what I have in my manuscript is I will leave it to your imagination as to who fits into the, into the extreme of this category. That's what I wrote. <laughs> I was even afraid to put it in my manuscript. Um, and so all that to say this, I see a way out for the church. I see a way back to the center. Replace this from new vital center to kingdom of God. I see the church moving back to a center. I see the church regaining her voice in this nation to speak into the divisiveness that, that, that is present in our nation. Something that I don't think our nation will recover from, but something that the church can speak into. Like we are salt and light. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. We are salt of the earth. We are a light on a hill. We represent the King of kings and Lord of lords. And, uh, and so I'm excited about the weeks to come. I'm excited for the future of the church in America, and I'm excited for, for what God's going to do in our midst. Well, I mentioned revival, and that's one of the way, things that Jim Belcher closed his, his book with. He said, you know, the only way the church is going to regain her voice is if a revival happens, if an awakening happens. Revival is this. Revival is an awakening that happens among God's or among Jesus' followers only when they actively pray, prepare, and work for it. We've got to pray. And we've got to prepare, and we've got to work for it. What do you mean by work for it? Well, I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about listening to the voice of God. And not just listening, but applying it to your heart. And, 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 and arriving with open hands and saying, Lord, what, what is it that you want from me? What, what is it that you want to do in my life? How do you want to shape my heart? How do you want to shape me you know, and, and prepare me for what it is that you have for, for me as your representative in this world? In their book on the subject of revival titled the, A God-Sized Vision, uh, Colin Hansen and John Woodridge, uh, who wrote the book, it's actually a really good book. If you're looking for a book on the history of revival in America, uh, it's a great book titled A God-Sized Vision. Um, 
They said this. They said, many, and the words will be on the screen, many of those who think they have seen revival may have in, my, may have in mind events that would not pass the biblical or historical standards. Perhaps their church holds regular revival meetings. In fact, there's a church locally uh, on, their, on their marquee sign that says, revival meetings are coming. That's not the type of revival that, the, that, that we see in the Bible or that we have seen happen periodically and rarely in human history. So they, they continue to say, perhaps their church holds regular revival meetings on certain nights of the week or during a summer month, but manipulative appeals to renew your vows to Christ do not constitute revival. During genuine revival, the Holy Spirit contends and convicts but he does not manipulate as he grants Christians a new experience of God's presence and power. That's what I mean by revival. That's what I mean by an awakening. That's what I, I really am, am convinced can, can be experienced by the church in America and around the world. And so uh, let me explain some things why I believe the Sermon on the Mount is important. Um, some think the Sermon on the Mount is something that's yet future to be experienced. There's a category, and, and you, you do with this what you want, but there's a, a theological posturing called dispensationalism. Historically, it said uh, the Sermon on the Mount is something that will be experienced when Jesus comes again, that it's yet in the future. It's not something that is realized today, that, that Christians experience today. Another group says that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, is an exposition, a teaching on the Old Testament to drive people to the grace of God for the forgiveness of their sins. And then those who are like on the progressive left would say that the Sermon on the Mount uh, is really meant to, to be lived out the best way possible to usher in a utopian society. And I would, I would submit to you that the Sermon on the Mount is none of those. The Sermon on the Mount is not something that we're encouraged to look forward to only when Jesus comes again. The Sermon on the Mount was not given primarily for us, not primarily to show us how great our sin is. The Sermon on the Mount was not given to shape legislation for the purpose of moving communities closer to a utopian society. Listen, the Sermon on the Mount is for the Christian today. It is a description of the Christian today. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, this is what discipleship looks like today. This is what we're called to now. This is why you have been given the Holy Spirit to empower you to live this now. And, and, and so that is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a famous pastor who is home with Jesus who has really been helpful in my sermon preparation for this series by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said this about the Sermon on the Mount. Now, before I read his quote, he, uh, he longed for revival in, in the mid-20th century. He longed for it. He saw little glimpses of, of the possibility of revival. He was in Europe. He saw the possibilities of it. He prayed for it, but he never really experienced it. He said this of the Sermon on, on, on the Mount. He said, these things were taught by the Lord and were meant for us his people. This is how the Christian is meant to live. 
Here is the life to which we are called. And I maintain, again, that if only every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing would already have started. Amazing and astounding things would happen. The world would be shocked, and men and women would be drawn and attracted to our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. Somebody asked me uh, a week or so ago, when do you think we'll see signs and wonders? I believe we'll see signs and wonders when we get serious about following Jesus. I believe that we'll see signs and wonders when the church of Christ in America repents and, and revival is experienced amongst uh, her people. It is the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. It is the application of what Peter described of the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's, uh, let's read this together, ready? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's us, brothers and sisters. We are, we are members of the kingdom of God. We are his citizens first and foremost. We are citizens of this country secondary. We are citizens of God's kingdom first. And, and, and so Jesus' description, which is the Sermon on the Mount, is who the Christian is today. He, who the citizen of his kingdom is today. And he begins, he begins by saying, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, I used to read the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes. I thought, oh, this is kind of like the Proverbs in the Old Testament. Right? Have you ever thought of that? Like, you, like what's the purpose of the Beatitudes? What is it actually saying? Like, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Is it talking about my, my, uh, you know, my status in terms of my social status? Is it talking about my bank account? Is it, what is it talking about? What does it mean to be blessed? Because each of these statements is, is, starts off with blessed. And it almost seems like the Beatitudes is separate from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? But the reality is it's, just, it's, it's, it's a segue into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. There are some things Jesus wants to make very clear before talking about what it means to be salt and light, before talking about what it means to, 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 to not be a person consumed by anger and, and a number of other things that he addresses in his sermon. Uh, the word blessed here is the Greek word makarios. Sounds like macaroni. <laughs> Some people are really happy when they eat macaroni, uh, right? Uh, it sounds like macaroni. Makarios, which can mean happy. It can mean joy. You know, happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, is, what does that mean? Well, Jesus kind of clues us into a little bit of what he means by happy or by blessed. When he says... Uh, Happy, verse 4, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So he's not talking about some feeling that I have. He's talking about something greater than, than my feelings. 
What he's talking about is he's talking about the approval of God. He's talking about the kind of joy that comes when God smiles upon you. He's talking about the kind of joy that comes when you know that you belong to the God of all creation, that you are his, that you are his son, that you are his daughter, and that nothing on earth or in hell will ever be able to change that. The great pursuit and longing of mankind is the desire to be happy. I think the reason for the polarization of our nation or the, 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 um, the division in our nation is because people are pursuing happiness or pursuing joy in all the wrong directions and for all the wrong reasons. That we were made to experience a joy that only is possible through a personal relationship with the God of all creation. We were made for a joy that only he can give. This is the blessing that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is talking about here is he's not talking about your bank account. He's not talking about the impoverished, financially impoverished. He's talking about those who come to him with empty hands. That the entrance into his kingdom can only come when you are truly poor in spirit. And what that means is the only way that you're ready to receive the gift of of salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, is when you realize that you have nothing good in of yourself to lay before God's feet so that he's obligated to let you into his kingdom. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that there's nothing righteous about you that you come to him, not with just empty hands, but you come to him as a beggar. In fact, the word, the Greek word that's used for, for poor here is the same word that's used when Jesus described a guy by the name of Lazarus in his story about Lazarus and the rich man. Are you familiar with that story? It, it begins, I won't tell you the whole story, but it begins this way. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously, meaning he had it all. <laughs> and he feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man. The same word that's used in, in, the, in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5 is the same word that's used here in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 21. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Literally, to be poor in spirit is to be desperately poor in spirit. It's, it's, to, it's like the way the psalmist described himself. He said, you, you know, um, as the deer thirsts for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. The, the picture is the deer has arrived at the, the place where there was water, but there's no more water there, and if it doesn't drink water soon, it will die. 
to be poor in spirit is to recognize that you're the only life and the only joy and the only contentment that is available to you is one that you cannot produce in of yourself. It's only something that God can give to you. A person who is poor in spirit realizes that he has no spiritual resources to bring to God's table of holiness and righteousness. Jesus told a, a, a parable of these two men. One of them was a Pharisee, and the other one was a tax collector. Now, if you understand the, the context of Jesus' day, the Pharisee, for the most part, had the Old Testament memorized. He did everything that he could to obey the law of God, the law of Moses. He was pretty good at looking righteous, dressing righteously. And, but the tax collector, well, the tax collector was a sellout. He, he compromised his, his, his morality by, by siding with the Roman Empire to take taxes or siphon taxes and money from his neighbors. The tax collector was viewed as one of the worst of the types of sinners out there. It, uh, he, he, was, he was considered unreachable by God, that God's grace could never possibly touch a tax collector. So Jesus told this parable, and he said, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. A Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood off at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Get it? <laughs> the way that you enter into God's kingdom is that you must be poor in spirit. That there is no person who belongs to God, no person whose sins have been forgiven, no person who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. That if you're not poor in spirit, in that, that if you do not realize that there is nothing that you bring to God's table of holiness except for open and empty hands, then you have never truly understood the gospel. That all the righteousness that you need and could ever receive is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And once you receive his righteousness through, by, by believing that he lived the life that you could never live and that, and that he died on a cross that you deserved and that I deserved for sins that we committed, once you realize that and by faith come to him and before him, pour in spirit and receive the forgiveness of your sins, then, it's, then only then will you experience the kind of contentment you were made to know. Only then will you be empowered through God's Holy Spirit to live the life that God intends for you. Okay, I, I, that's why I'm optimistic about the church. That's why I think the church has a voice to speak into this madness that's going on in our nation and, and in our world. And that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what happens. Like there's no, there, there's no government, there's no disease, 
There's no recession. Not even death can remove from you what has been given to you if you have arrived before God's throne as one who is poor in spirit to receive the gift of salvation that is only possible through Jesus Christ. You know, there's this verse in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I don't know if I have the... Yeah, I do. So let's read this together. Ready? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Christian is one who, who, who at some point in his or her life came before the throne of God in a metaphorical, figurative way as one who was desperately poor, seeking the forgiveness of their sins as, one, as, as a beggar seeks the crumbs from a table. And to be blessed, to be blessed is to be one who's been approved by God. Think about that. If you're a Christian here, you are a person that God approves of. You're a person that God loves. You're a person that not only does he love you, he treasures you. Once you were not the people of God, but now you are the people of God. You are now kingdom of priests. You represent him. Reminds me of this hymn, uh, and I won't read the whole hymn to you, but some of you may recognize it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come. This is how the Christian enters into the kingdom of God. And we live in a world that's full of arrogance and pride. And until we, are, until we come to terms with just the reality, and when I say we, we humans, come to, the ter- come to terms with the reality that, that we were created in his image and there's nothing that we bring before him except ourselves. And you come to him with open hands. And only after you receive the gift of, your, of, of salvation, only after you receive the gift of righteousness that can only be given to you through Jesus Christ, are you able to give back you know, into this world by representing him. Our world so desperately needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only hope of the nations. Not Republicans, not Democrats, not libertarians on the left or the right, but Jesus Christ and in him alone. Amen? And that's who we represent, brothers and sisters. So uh, I'm going to close in prayer, but I just want you for a moment just to look around for a second. Just look to your neighbor, look around. It's not awkward because I'm asking you to do it, right? Just look around. The majority of the people in this room are, are individuals who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, because I know most of you. And uh, as a result of that, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the bond, listen, the bond that you share with one another is stronger than any political persuasion you might have. 
It's stronger than whether or not you think masks are, were legitimate or not, or that you should be vaccinated or not, or you should be Republican or Democrat or not. It's stronger than all of that. The bond that draws each and every one of you in this room and watching the live stream together is Jesus Christ. And the common thing that we all share together is that all of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus arrived at, you know, before the, the, the foot of the cross with open hands, as beggars who are poor in spirit. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're still trying to figure out who this Jesus is or what it means to follow him, well, now you have a better understanding of what it means to follow him. First, you arrive before, you know, before him with open hands, empty hands, understanding that, that there is no righteousness you bring to to the kingdom of heaven, that the only righteousness that you need is a righteousness is not one that you can produce, but an alien righteousness that has been produced for you, and that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel. And every beatitude that follows after this is just builds upon that principle, that point, that truth. We must be poor in spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for what you're doing in and through our lives. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for what you're going to do in every person in this room and those watching the live stream and those who, who will find their way into Meadowbrook. I thank you for what you're going to do in our lives in the, in the weeks and months to come as we dive deep into the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, a description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray, amen. Hey, have a great rest of the week. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.